Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to part two of Jonathan Milner's Invested Investor podcast. In part one, we heard Jonathan's entrepreneurial journey, founding a world-leading life science innovator. In part two, we hear about Jonathan's transition into angel investing and his top tips to entrepreneurs and angel investors, including his advice that entrepreneurs need to be tenacious and always keep their eyes on the goal. We hope you enjoy it as much as part one. Let's move on to angel investing. You actually started angel investing many, many years before you stood down from being full-time CEO of Abcam, didn't you? So back in the mid-2000s, was it? Well, my first angel investment was way, way back in 2003. And I co-invested again with David. So David had just started to do his angel investing. Yes. And of course, this was about the time, I think, that Cambridge Angels started. It is, yeah, a year or two after it started, yes. Yeah. So alongside David, I made my first angel investment, a very, very, very modest amount of money because I didn't have any money at that point. <laughs> so that was your first investment when you were still CEO. As you say, you weren't very well paid, etc. Why did you do it? Why did you invest? It was the thrill of a startup business. And I caught the bug from David. So David gave me a number of things. And one is his generosity and being a mentor, which I wanted to pass on. And so when I meet entrepreneurs, I want to help them. And secondly, it's the thrill of being involved with a young company mm. and seeing that progress and seeing the young entrepreneur blossom and flourish and then the product get to market. And David described it to me once. He said, Jonathan, this is the best thrill in the world. And he's quite right. Right. Excellent. So you put a little bit of money in then in, in 03. And were you doing one a year or two a year at the beginning? No, I, st- I didn't have enough money to do any more after that <laughs> point um, until we took the company onto the stock market yes. in 2005. And at that point... I released a little bit of cash and I was then in a position to be able to start angel investing. And at that point, David said, well, why don't you come and join us at the Cambridge Angels and come along and it'll be fun. So I did. So I started to, to go along to the to Cambridge Angels. The one thing that I didn't have, though, was enough time to really think about the businesses that I was investing. So I was very much just going along, being dragged along, really, by the other investors and sort of sheep investing, if I'm honest with you, alongside others like David, for instance, that I thought, well, you know, they know what they're doing. I'll just put some money in and small amounts of money and and follow them. And because I had to do this basically in my spare time, because I was still full-time CEO at Abcam. So that was probably a a mistake, because I think if you're going to do angel investing, you do need to think very carefully about which companies you invest in. And then to bring your expertise to the company to help them. So take a position on the board or become an observer or just a mentor, in fact. But keep an eye on the companies because I found that experienced business people such as ourselves, we can bring an awful lot to young companies that are struggling to get out there into the market. Yes, I mean, not everybody has to do that. And this is the principle of the invested investor, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, because actually money that hasn't got time but has got a few connections, is still valuable, mm. isn't it? So there I will agree. have been things, even yeah. though you were super, super busy for those 10 or 11, 12 years or whatever, until you stepped down from being CEO, you still help those companies. I'm confident of that. 
Oh, you yes. didn't help as much as uh, you'd like to have done, but you yeah. still helped. Yeah, oh, definitely. And I still got a good return on them overall. I mean, that's what yeah, I we're talking. <laughs> How many companies have you invested in so far over the last it's 15 years? It's approaching 40 companies now over the years. And how many are still in existence? The majority of those are still in existence. I would say probably 30, yeah, low 30s are in, still in existence. And how many have you sold and made money out of or have gone onto the stock market like Horizon? I've had about, let me see, about five exits so far. And then, so you've only had about five losses then? Yes, it's not bad. Yeah, it's, it's you've not, done very not, well. Yes, not a bad record. And are the majority of these life sciences? Yes. Well, the most recent one, just to sort of recap a bit, I stepped down for my full-time role as CEO of Abcam. I'd spent 16 years being the CEO of Abcam in September 2014. And at that point, I could then actually really start to concentrate on my angel investments and it was then that I made the strategic decision that I would stick to the type of business that I know, which is all in life sciences, and especially in the areas of life science where I thought there was a momentum and a wave and where the, all the exciting things of the future are actually happening. So I, I made a strategic decision there to stick to, Apart to that from, area. Apart from, of course, syndicate room, which I <laughs> led you into some time ago, which you're on the, the board only, of. Quite right. Peter, yes, the only exception to that is actually Syndicate Room. So, we'll come to that. It plays a very important role, Syndicate Room. It does, yes. exactly. Excellent. So you're investing alongside other people. You're also leading deals, I suspect, even before you step down as CEO. Yes, that's true, because I now have a position where I'm quite well known. So I get a lot of business plans and I get a lot of young entrepreneurs coming to me to help with funding and also with mentoring and a bit of advice so I do see an awful lot of early stage investments. And if I like those investments, I will take the lead and be the lead investor on those. Yeah, so you're actually building the round from that, as in deal leading. So can you talk about Horizon Discovery? This was something I think you found in the States, didn't you? Actually, no, this came out of Cambridge Enterprise and in conjunction with Chris Torrance. Chris is a, is a, is a Cambridge, um, I think he was working for Vernalis, but out of that, he then recognised there was a piece of technology at the University of Washington for gene editing. And he managed to secure a licence for that just for Europe for this piece of gene editing technology in conjunction with Cambridge Enterprise. So they had the exclusive licence, so they still needed to raise money. So I met with Chris through Geraldine Rogers and she introduced me to Chris and I said, Chris, let's go to the pub. So we went down to the Eagle, we sat in the Eagle, and Chris said, I've got this incredible piece of technology out of the University of Washington. And I said, I have no idea, Chris, what you're talking about. So he, he then explained it to me. And then I said, Chris, I still have got no idea what you're talking about. But gene editing is going to be huge. I knew that much. Didn't know quite how the RAAV gene editing worked, but I knew gene editing was going to be huge. And I said, well, OK, well, you know, I'll put some money in. And we spent the rest of the evening arguing about the valuation and uh, I started off by saying, well, I, you know, your company is worth 700,000 tops. Chris was saying, uh, no, 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 it's 900,000. <laughs> <laughs> by modern standards, those are low numbers. <laughs> we could have saved an awful lot of time just because we ended up, of course, at, 800, 800, 000, yes. at the end of the evening yes. after quite a few pints. Yeah. 
They should be pointed out the eagle is where DNA was worked on. That's right. Well. Yeah, Watson and Crick. Yeah, pub in Central there. Cambridge. Yes. Okay. And the Horizon, of course, has gone on to great things and it floated some years ago now, didn't it? That's right. Yeah. So that went on the stock exchange, I think, two thousand and twelve. And uh, it's gone on to great things. Okay, let's not just talk about the successes. Let's talk about some failures. So the investments that you've made, and you haven't had many failures anyway, you've probably got some in your portfolio that are not doing very well. But um, what have you got wrong? What should you tell your 15-year younger self? The one characteristic of all of my failures is when I haven't backed my gut instinct about the entrepreneur. And it actually comes back to when David actually invested in me. And afterwards, I had a very frank conversation with David. And I said, well, what did you see in me Mm. to invest in me? Because on paper, I'm the last person you would ever invest in. You know, pure academic, no business experience whatsoever. And he said, Jonathan, he says, it's very, very simple. He said, I saw you as a person that could just walk through walls to get things done. Mm. And my philosophy has therefore been, I want to spot entrepreneurs that can walk through walls. And every single time I've not done that, it's not ended well. It's very difficult. There's a lot of gut there, isn't there? I mean, how long did David get to know you before he decided that you could walk through walls? He can't have seen you walk through a wall. I don't mean physically, clearly beforehand. How long was that courting process before he wrote you the cheque? I think it was at least six months. Okay. Yeah. He wrote the cheque pretty early on and then he was taking a gamble and then he had to see if I could actually walk through walls. And the first wall was that he said, have you got any money? (laughs) And I said, don't be ridiculous. I haven't got any money. I've got no money at all. And I just bought this house with Rosie and we're mortgaged up to the hilt and uh, I get paid absolutely peanuts from the university. So where am I going to get some money from? He said, well, unless you've got any money, I can't help you. So come back to me when you've got some money. So that's what the so next remortgaged week, having just so mortgaged. I remortgaged. <laughs> well, no, this was the first remortgage. Yes. So, re, so we remortgaged the house and I skipped back into his office a week later. So a week mm. later. So the test that he gave me was yes. find some money. And so he was absolutely massively impressed when I came back with this £11,000, despite the fact it wasn't going to be enough. But (laughs) but I'd passed the first test, so that was the first wall. But have you ever done that to another entrepreneur? I certainly haven't. I haven't said to them, within a week, raise some money. No, I think, to be honest, even the most entrepreneurial person in an environment where it's impossible to raise... And back then, you could remortgage. Banks were throwing money all over the place. Very irresponsible, as you know, which led to the crisis, you know, 2008 crisis. But it's very, very, very hard to say to entrepreneurs, you have to hit this hurdle when you know it's impossible, actually. Exactly. So so it's done on gut, it's done on getting to know each other, etc. all the things we talk about. So each fail you've had, you've either not got to know them well enough or ignored your gut? Yes. It's where I've been seduced, perhaps, by the technology and been more focusing on that and then making excuses for the team, for the entrepreneur, for the management team. And that's when I found there's this problem. So no matter how good the technology is, if you don't have a really good management team, founder, entrepreneur, then it's not going to work in my experience. 
Excellent. Let's just talk about Syndica Room now, because we've interviewed Gonzalo and we've interviewed David Gill, actually, in recent times, and these will both be broadcast before this podcast is broadcast. Mm. I remember sitting next to you at a dinner, a pitching event, and suggesting, and you saying to me, this isn't for me, which it clearly wasn't, because mm. there wasn't anything like, totally off topic from life sciences, Absolutely. it was a platform. Yeah. Can you explain the process in your mind between us sitting together and you being the largest individual investor apart from the founders, and on the board. Absolutely. So this comes back to the walkthrough wars. And I started to get to know Gonzalo. Gonzalo would actively seek me out. And I didn't really know why at events and through your introduction. So I got to know him and I really liked him. I thought, gosh, this guy's really energetic. He's very forceful. I think he could walk through walls. He's a really good entrepreneur. But I didn't know anything about what he was doing. I didn't know anything about, you know, syndicate room or equity crowdfunding or finance, fintech. I didn't even know what fintech meant. Yeah. I thought it was something to do with Finland. <laughs> so at the point where um, it gets interesting is when I was actually... So Gonzalo had got my... I don't know how he managed to get my phone number, so credit to Possibly him. me. Possibly. I don't, I don't know. But then I'm on holiday. In Greece, weren't you? Greece. Yeah, and I can remember we were taking a walk up the mountain to the monastery at the top of the mountain, and I got this call from Gonzalo. And Gonzalo said, we need funding. And I said, well, I can't help you, Gonzalo, because there's no way that I can do any due diligence whatsoever. I'm on holiday. I've got no email. I've got nothing. So he said, well, we're really desperate. We really need your funding. So I said, well, look, because I like you, I'm going to give you 24 hours to come back to me with an offer, bearing in mind that I'm not going to be able to do any due diligence, an offer that I can't refuse. And he went away, came back the following well, he, day. He went away and I was in the meeting that yeah. was making that decision yeah. with the other shareholders. So I thought, you know, the other side of the story where we had to decide as shareholders what offer we were happy that you... Yeah. Would, and also yeah. we had tried to outguess you mm. to work out what you That's would right. say no to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a really good result in the end. It was any more and I would have felt uncomfortable because I really didn't know anything about the business. Mm. We were a very, very early stage business and not being able to do any due diligence, then any higher valuation than what we settled on would have jeopardised it. So it was... No, it, uh, was a, it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So we were very pleased. Yeah. So, of course, at that point, then you start to get to know the business, you start to mentor, along with other people, Gonzalo, and join the board. Can you just tell me how you feel you've helped his journey? Absolutely. Gonzalo... He comes to me very often. So we meet virtually weekly for advice. We might go to the pub, have a chat. And I can give him advice on how you can actually scale a company, how you can hire and fire people, how you can strategically build a company that can scale. And this is one of the things where, you know, syndicate room really needs help from people like myself because it's all about being able to scale. So I'd like to think that I've added a great deal of value in being able to bring that advice and then also in building the board as well so we've built a very strong board now we've got tim ballas as our chairman we've got david gill of course of st john's innovation on the board he was an ex-banker and vc absolutely so i'd like to think i'm able to bring that type of advice to gonzalo and also be able to help him through the times when things aren't going so well. And there's always times with startups, with founder entrepreneurs, where things are the bleakest you can possibly imagine. And you've got to have people around you that are going, come on, it's fine. You know, we've all been through this. 
pull yourself together, we'll get through it, you know, we'll work out what to do and reorganise the business. There's a lot of naivety, as we both know, as we've mentored hundreds of people in entrepreneurs, isn't there? Mm. The entrepreneurs who've been on this podcast have said the same. Mm. It's just much, much tougher than you could ever imagine. That's right. Very, very tough for entrepreneurs. Indeed. So, Jonathan, you are a prime example of an investor-investor. You're investing both money and your time and expertise, real smart money. And you've sort of got into that role because you really enjoy it and you yeah. can see a future in doing that. Can you give me some tips for angels? Imagine the audience are angels who've done a little bit of investing but want to learn from you to improve the outcome of their investments and ones that want to help with the journeys of the startups. Yes, indeed. I like to keep this very, very simple because I see a lot of companies and I don't have a lot of time, so I need to be able to make decisions very quickly. And I've boiled it down to three things. They come down to the team. The team could just be one person, the entrepreneur. You do sing- they- I don't do single van teams when I can avoid it. If I think that they can walk through walls, yeah. I will do rarely, yeah. but, but I do. Then I look at what sort of technology they have. And this is important because I shy away from... Single product technologies, I really don't like them because they're very risky. Things like drug discovery where there's just a single asset, I shy away from those. So I like to see a platform technology, something that can scale and be put into multiple markets and can expand, etc. And then thirdly, this is an interesting one, which is you have to remember it's all about customers. So... The businesses I like to invest in are the ones where the entrepreneurs or the team comes back and says, we've got a customer. They might not have a product yet, but they've spoken to a customer. And the customer said, if you built me that product, I would buy it at this price. And then this is such a valuable piece of information because you can then bring that back in and you can actually build a whole business plan around well, what is the customer willing to pay for this product and how am I going to be able to do the supplies, the manufacturing costs, etc.? What's my gross margin going to be? But most of all, it is market validation that what you're actually building is actually going to sell. And a lot of the companies that I see have not even gone and spoken to any customers, no matter got any orders or any you know, They just assume sold. the market will want it. Will That's right. They make an assumption that the market wants the product that they they want. And I realised this very early on coming back to the ice bucket story. The most wonderful thing that happened to me was when I went and spoke to the customers. Mm. So I got all of this information and then I could tailor the product to fit Mm. what the customers needed. some, Some angels require the customer to actually have paid over some money as well. You're not so worried about that? Well, it depends because I think if you've got a very highly technical product that has got good market validation, as in customers are saying, look, if it was there, I would buy it, but you still have to develop it. Yes. But as long as you've got customers saying, hopefully written, you know, saying, yes, we would put in an order for this product, when that's, it, if enough it, if it fits, yeah. that's enough for me. Okay. You can't always have a product that's ready to go to market. Exactly, particularly in life sciences where it may be even multiple years. My wife works for a company called Chimab, monoclonal antibodies. Mm-hmm. And that's been a seven-year journey already. That's right, yeah. So those tips for angels. What about tips for entrepreneurs? So entrepreneurs who are approaching people like us who are seeking money. My biggest piece of advice to entrepreneurs is to just be tenacious. Be tenacious, never give up. Always think about what the bigger prize is. So really concentrate on that big prize because there's going to be times when it's going to be so tough that you're just going to want to give up but you've got to keep your mind on that big prize. 
and then be willing to adapt your business model to the circumstances that you find out there in the market. Because I have never, ever had a company, and I'm sure you haven't either, Peter, where the first business plan was the oh, one exactly. that five years later <laughs> yeah. is exactly the same one that it, you delivered Gonzalo on. Gonzalo actually <laughs> claims that is the case in no, his podcast. It's not. <laughs> Still not. <laughs> it's not. Definitely not. Every company has to adapt to the strategy there. Yeah. And then there's also the networking as well, which I saw very early on with David when he introduced me to all the network in Cambridge. That's essential. So you've got to get out there. You be like Gonzalo, you know, find people like myself, find people like yourself, find people like David, get plugged into a network because we know people and we can put people in touch. And it's all about networking. I spend a hell of a lot of my time just simply introducing people, yeah. you know, young entrepreneurs to the people that they need for the journey. Yes, I do as well. Okay, obviously you've got to the point now where you're still deputy chairman of ABCAM, aren't you? So that's a role. That's correct. And you've got other board positions. You haven't really got time in your hands because I know it's been difficult enough to try to book this slot. But you are giving back. So you've given money, to, I think, to your university in Bath. and That's correct. Also to Cambridge University. Talk a little bit about the Milner Institute. Yeah, well, this comes from my belief that we have to give back. And since... 2005, when I've been able to do that, there's a big charitable part of my philosophy in two, two arms to it. It's not, it's not just the investing, it's the it's charitable arm to, to it as well. And I have three passions that I can indulge there. One is human health, because what happened to my father, because of my background, because that's the life sciences area that I'm in. So being able to make a difference there and to address some of the problems that we now face. And this is how the idea for the Milner Institute came about. So Tony Kuzaridis, who I was in his lab with, came to me and he said, Jonathan, we've got a problem with drug discovery. We've got all this wonderful biology within the university. We've got all of this chemistry within the pharmaceutical companies. The two aren't talking to each other. We need to bring them under one roof. I want to start an institute. So I said, Tony, you know what? You're pushing on an open door here. I've been thinking exactly the same thing. You know, let's bring in an institute within the university where We can have an open collaboration between all the scientists within the university to bring their biology with the chemistry from big pharma companies. And it's gone fantastically well. Now that's the Milner Institute. And that's going to be, again, right down next to the ABCAM building in Cambridge Biomedical Campus. So that's been wonderful, and that's an ongoing project. And then my second passion, if you like, is in education, and education especially around evolution. So I gifted some money to Bath University to start a centre there. It's actually called the Milner Centre for Evolution, which has been tremendously exciting with the aim of teaching evolution properly, so teaching it to students properly, but also to be a world-class centre for evolutionary research. And there's a third one, which is my passion for conservation. And so I've been working a lot with the Galapagos Conservation Trust, for instance, with the Natural History Museum down in London, And um, that's an area that's ongoing. So I I gift quite a bit of money yearly to various conservation projects globally. Excellent, Jonathan. Wonderful, wonderful. And one last question, which you haven't prepared for. I'm 10 years older than you. What are you going to be doing when you get to my age? I hope I'm doing what I'm doing at the moment, because this has been such an incredible journey for me. And I do realise how hugely lucky I am to be able to do what I do and have so much fun and meet such interesting people and work with such incredible companies that I suppose I don't want that to end. (laughs) So I would like to think that I'm going to do this for 
as many years as I can possibly go on for. That's an absolutely great answer. You're giving so much now to entrepreneurs, to charity, to education, that long may that continue. Jonathan, it's been an absolutely wonderful, interesting, educational talking to you today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another Investor Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investorinvestor.com, or via a number of online podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content.